the moral majority used the evangelical conversion playbook to not only make more evangelicals, but to cultivate more evangelical voters. Jerry Falwell understood this. The moral majority understood this. You don't have to be connected to something to either endorse it or influence it. A lot of them think that this love affair between the Republican Party and evangelicals has been going on for quite a while. Well, when you look at it in terms of overall history, it really hasn't. Protestants and Catholics don't like each other on a good day. But when they both have common purposes that involve things that will tear America apart, well, you know, they can bury the hatchet long enough to accomplish that. And what could happen if they go unchecked? I dare say we're already seeing it. It amazes me how much this came down to just really one guy and an idea. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. Jerry Falwell, you got your religion in our politics. Hey, your politics embraced our religion. And sadly, it's pretty much true. And since they play prominently in tonight's discussion, here's a little mid-80s bumper sticker wisdom for you. The moral majority literally wasn't either. Mm. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this time around, we're talking about how evangelical faith and the Republican Party found themselves joined together in the bonds of unholy wedlock. <laughs> it should it should be a more complicated story than it is, but it just goes to prove how helplessly impressionable, gullible, and easy to persuade the average evangelical is. This unholy alliance is a lot newer than many evangelicals are taught to think it is. A lot of them think that this love affair between the Republican Party and evangelicals has been going on for quite a while. Well, when you look at it in terms of overall history, it really hasn't. And we're going to get into that and a lot more tonight. But before we get into any of that, I'm leading our Christians Behaving Badly segment this week with a little disclaimer. What you're about to hear is so silly, so foolhardy, so (laughs) fundamentally toddler-esque and wildly insulting to anything that even closely resembles intelligence. I feel it's only fair to warn you. Laughing here is going to be mandatory because if you don't, you'll just scream. Choose wisely. (laughs) Laugh. It's not even worth getting angry over. So... Without further ado, I give you Pseudoscience Theater 2021, the anti-vax edition. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to preface this segment with something I read in the New York Times newsletter this morning. The primary segment was by David Leonhardt about the COVID vaccine and the rise of the Delta variant. Deaths are rising among the unvaccinated, but that doesn't mean that vaccinated people are safe. The virus mutates the longer it cycles in a population, which means that there might be a variant that can infect through the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And one third of the eligible population has not taken the vaccine or are hesitant. One third of the eligible population, that means one out of three still has not gotten the vaccine. And that just, it dumbfounds me. Yeah. With all the information that we have, with the sheer number of people who have gotten vaccinated and have had zero, even side effects, let alone long-lasting effects from the vaccine, it's absolutely dumbfounding to me. 
how those numbers are still where they are. And what dumbfounds me further is just the overwhelming amount of information that's out there now. And the way that certain segments of the population are able to just keep dismissing it and dismissing it and dismissing it for increasingly ridiculous reasons that we're going to get into right now. Yeah. The anger is rising among the vaccinated. Oh, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Just in this house alone. Really. The longer the holdouts of unvaccinated people continue, the longer it takes before normal life resumes. Do they not get this? Do they not care? I, I don't know. It is so crazy. It's beyond crazy. Yeah. That was like the last point. I kind of trailed off in my thoughts there a minute ago, but that was the last point that I was thinking. Yeah. It's, do these people want their lives back? I don't know. It just, because this is how you're going to get it back. Right. By stopping this thing and not continuing to make excuses for why you're not. Right. Right. The CDC is thinking of advising that certain populations start wearing masks again. Good idea. They never should have told us it was okay not to. Yeah, true. Schools with high volumes of children too young to be vaccinated are becoming more reluctant to open. And the vaccine mandates are coming. Well, you know what? I have, I have so many mixed feelings about this. Yeah. But at the same time, when does life go back to normal? Yeah. And if people are going to behave like toddlers, then there comes a point where you just sort of have to treat them like toddlers. Right. And this is one of the outgrowths of that. I don't particularly like the idea of mandating it, telling people that you have to put this thing in your body. But at the same time, you know, how many people do we allow those same people to make sick or kill? You know, where does it end? Right. What's the middle ground here? I wish I knew. Yeah. What a, what a good middle ground would be here, but right. I'm at a loss. Yeah, I, I can't think of it either. I believe, though, that the polio vaccine was mandated if you had school-aged children. Right. And a lot of schools do require right. that you are vaccinated against certain things before you're allowed to take classes. Right. So I, this really isn't that new of a thing, but it is more invasive, yeah. I think, than we've seen before. Right. And it's going to cause problems. Oh, it is. But if they just got the vaccine, there wouldn't have to be a mandate. That's true. But then I also understand the whole notion of I have the right to say what goes in my body. True. You know, it's the same conversation that we've been having over the last few weeks. It's like if we want to enjoy our freedoms and liberties, we have to respect other people's. Yeah. But how far does that extend? Because... You're talking about people who could potentially be doing harm to other people. So is that where the line gets drawn? It's a very, very confusing yeah. and conflicting kind of question. True. Because at this point, it's like, yeah, let these people who are whining and bitching and telling lies yeah. about the vaccine and what it does, let them find themselves in a position where someone is holding their arm and jabbing them. You know, that's my visceral base response to that. Yeah. But my intellectual response to it is this is a very gray area, and I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, I know. I agree. Um, While it will never be a nationwide mandate for various reasons, certain workplaces, hospitals, colleges, and schools are considering vaccine mandates. Of course, there will be exception for religious beliefs, which annoys me, but the mandates are coming. 
learn what you can about the vaccine, get over it, and get it. Yeah, that about covers it. If you don't, you're going to pay a price. You could lose access to school, your workplace, or other places where you could infect other people. Yep. And, and you know, again, I have no idea how I feel about it. Yeah, I know. I'm already vaccinated. It doesn't affect me. Right. But at the same time, you know, we've had we've had so much tension yeah. and so much bad blood mm. in this country over this one issue. I have to wonder if this is the thing that's going to push it too far over the edge. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's it's such a catch-22. It really is. And with that, let's talk about two of the dumbest anti-vaxxers around. We'll start with radical right-wing activist Dave Dobenmeyer, who melted down about Enoch, rebelling angels, Nephilim, and of course, the evil Dr. Fauci and his DNA-melting vaccine. DNA-melting vaccine. Yes. It sounds like the plot of a Grindhouse movie. Yeah, it does. One of those B-sci-fi Grindhouse movies. Yep, I can see it now. He spent a good long time talking about the Book of Giants, which is an apocryphal book supposedly written by the prophet Enoch, which talks about the many reasons the flood of Noah happened. Mm-hmm. According to the Book of Giants, angels in rebellion against God had mated with human women, creating a race of giants known as the Nephilim, who were so wicked that God had no choice but to destroy the world. After he talked about the Nephilim for a while, he then linked the current COVID-19 vaccines to the end times. By of citing, course he did. Of course oh he did, because everything comes back to the oh end times. Oh my God, here we go. By citing Jesus' warning in Matthew 24 that... As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, asserting that the vaccines are a modern-day demonic effort to corrupt humanity's DNA akin to the mixing up DNA prior to the flood. You've got to be kidding. (laughs) No. People, I warned you. Okay? I gave you adequate warning. Yes. And it's just beginning. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. He gets really, really excited about this. And here's... A quote from the man, Friends, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. This jab is mixing and melting and working and screwing up your DNA. The same thing that was going on before the days of Noah. The exact same thing. Dr. Fauci is an emissary of the devil, folks. Not just the devil that you see on Halloween. Not just a guy who dresses up in a suit. He is an emissary of Beelzebub himself, sent to deceive and destroy the seed of Christ. And now it's starting to sound like a Pure Flix movie. It really does. But then again, this is the type of brain that the Pure Flix movies come out of. Yeah, you see, I wonder if David Ayer White actually looks at Right Wing Watch once in a while. Yeah. Because there's fodder. There is there's so much fodder. fodder. That comes out of that website that he could be capitalizing on. I mean, I'm reading these words in front of me, Mm -hmm. and I I feel like I'm losing IQ points. I need to scroll past, and we need to get on to your next story. (laughs) Okay. And in It's Everyone Else's Fault news, we have Rick Wiles, who is blaming the vaccinated for his COVID-19 infection. He's blaming the vaccinated. Folks, you heard it right. He's blaming the vaccinated. This guy is batshit. 
Yeah. I mean, they're all batshit. But all... there are a couple of them that are just... These are the extra batshit ones. They're, they're, they're where batshit goes to learn how to be batshit. This is true. Now, no one can accuse Rick Wiles of being sensible about COVID. He believes the vaccines were part of a plot to carry out global genocide. And now he has proceeded to accuse vaccinated people of infecting him with the virus. So he got this thing. And, well, you know, I'm, I say this in such a, a shocked kind of tone. It doesn't surprise me. No. But it's just, in, it's rage-inducing. Yeah. When you think about the, the absolute lack of personal responsibility yeah. that these people possess, that they project when things like this happen. Yeah. And when you're someone like Rick Wiles, and you think like Rick Wiles, this is the kind of absurdity that you come up with to try and convince people is going on. Yeah. It's, it absolutely amazes me that he has the audience that he has. Yeah. But he has one. He has one. He's on YouTube daily. Yeah. Crazy. This is a quote from the man himself. You've got people who are vaccinated, who are shedding the virus, infecting other people. Shedding it like hair, like I dander? Yes. <laughs> okay. Walking around thinking they are protected, and yet they are the ones who are spreading the virus to other people. Science, please. Science, Let's see the please. science on What's, that, Rick. Yeah, I know, right? I don't think that there is a variant called Delta. Well, I don't think there's a God called Jesus, so I guess we're even. I guess. I think it's a name that they gave the public to explain the explosion of infections, to explain the explosion of infections caused by the vaccinated people. Explosion the of infections. The, the, the mental image that that elicits is not pleasant. No, it really isn't. <laughs> vaccinated people just exploding and infecting people. There's another Grindhouse movie for you right there. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he goes on. We're witnessing for the first time in human history global genocide, compliments of the Church of Satan. I'm sure the Church of Satan would have something to say about that, and I hope they do. You know, they should really sue if them that's a direct libel. quote, I hope they do. Yeah, I know. The Communist Party is the political arm of the Church of Satan. <laughs> These people that are running oh the world are Satanists. They're killing off massive numbers of people. He also called the vaccine the satanic serum. Such a nice alliteration. And now you have the title yes. for your Grindhouse movie. Yes. Or the satanic your, serum. Or your Pure Flix movie or, you know, Same Difference. Yeah. I, yeah. Have you seen some of those Pure Flix movies? We've yeah, talked about Christian a few of those Grindhouse. Pure Flix movies. So, yeah. yeah. He went on to say, I'm convinced that my infection and the explosion that we have had here in our staff among my family and friends, 20-some people all together infected suddenly, I believe it came from a vaccinated person coming into this building who is shedding the virus. I believe that's how it happened. Yeah, you're allowed. You're dead wrong, but you're allowed. I'm not sure you should be allowed to tell other people no. that this is what's going on because now there are people who believe it. Because this idiot said it. I know. I'm, but, I'm... You see, you're entitled to believe whatever you want. But you see, the thing that I love the most about the truth is that it's true whether you believe it or not. True. That's it. And the truth is that it wasn't likely 
to be someone who was vaccinated. And yes, if you're vaccinated, you can carry it. Yeah. You can spread it that way. Um, you can carry it in various ways and right. spread it. It's possible. It's just not very likely. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about the same odds as winning the lottery and being struck by lightning 10 minutes later. It's, it's astronomical. Yeah. The, the odds are astronomical that someone who has been vaccinated could actually spread it to someone else unless they're in an environment where they're knowingly with people who have it yeah. and aren't taking proper precautions to contain it. That's the only way. I mean, you practically have to do it deliberately. Yeah. So, no, you can believe that, Rick Wiles. You are absolutely within your rights to believe it. But just like everything else you believe, just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. Yep. And with that, just want to let everybody know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. $5 is what it takes to, uh, to join us at the base level. And the one perk that we have right now is early access to episodes. So if you want to get your episodes on Friday night, as opposed to late Saturday night or early Sunday morning, all it takes is a fiver. You get early access to episodes and you help us build this thing to the point where we can offer more and do more with the show and make it that much better over time. If you don't have the means to send us money, then again, just tell somebody new about the show this week. Give us your likes. Give us your five-star ratings. Leave a review where you can. Any help that you can give us, whether it's monetary or in the ways that I just described, where you just let people know that we're here. It'll be greatly appreciated. And for those of you who keep coming back week after week, once again, thank you. We're glad that we're here for you. And we're glad that we're providing something that you can benefit from and that you need. And we'll be here to keep doing it for as long as we can. So patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network if you can help us out financially. Otherwise, just make sure that you're getting the word out for us. And we really appreciate your efforts to help out with that. And with that, we're going to dive right into our main topic. So how did evangelicals and Republicans forge this unholy, unpatriotic, and hopelessly toxic relationship that they have? The vast majority of my comments tonight come from the details in an entry on encyclopedia.com about the moral majority, and the link is in the show notes. To begin, it's important to note that Protestantism has in some ways contributed positively to American society and culture. Take, for example, the contrast between the views of the average Protestant and the Catholic Church when it comes to the Bible. Over time, things have changed a little, but many Catholics have been brought up to believe that the Bible is only open to clerical interpretation. Reading it isn't necessary. We'll read the most relevant parts to you during the Mass. That's the way it's been with them for years. Protestants, on the other hand, have always believed that the Bible is up for individual interpretation and have also championed and facilitated literacy through a number of programs and channels over the years. And expanding literacy is always a societal positive, regardless of the motivation. But there's a problem when you don't contain interpretation of the Bible to a specific person or group of people, and that problem is simple. People start thinking for themselves. They develop varying interpretations and draw their own conclusions. This is where splits and the establishment of various denominations comes into play. 
Early on in its history, Christianity began taking on scores of unique faces, and evangelicalism eventually became one of them. Evangelicalism would start taking on many forms in and of itself, beginning in the latter half of the 19th century. From the Baptists, to Foursquare Gospel, to Pentecostal Holiness, to the Assemblies of God, there were and are wildly different interpretations of various parts of the Bible, even among Christians who identify as evangelical. And here's a little quote from the article, and there will be a few of these. I've kind of gone the route of, here's a quote, and here's what I think about that. There's going to be a lot of that going on tonight. So here's our first quote. Those who would eventually be identified as evangelicals combined a strong Christian witness with belief in the authority of the Bible, the substitutionary atonement of Christ for the sins of the world, biblical miracles, and orthodox Christian doctrines such as those that were articulated in the Apostles or Nicene creeds. These groups included the charismatic holiness and other traditions, many associated with African Americans, which continue to provide considerable theological diversity. Now, the spread of religious ideology has looked the same in America since even before the official establishment of the colonies, and one time period illustrates this idea better than any other, the time of the Great Awakenings. Again from the article, the Great Awakening was a religious revival that impacted the English colonies in America during the 1730s and 1740s. Now, at that point in time, just a little aside here, religion was not something that was, well, it was popular. There, there were plenty of religious people in America, but the face of religion had kind of gotten tainted a few, um, just a few short decades before we all know what happened in the 1690s. So it was difficult to take religion seriously at that point. For a lot of people, it was difficult, but then things started to change around the 1730s, and that's where the Great Awakening comes in. The movement came at a time when the idea of secular rationalism was being emphasized, and the reason for that is just what I described a minute ago. People were getting disillusioned with religion because they saw the crazy that can come out of it, and passion for religion at that time had grown stale. Christian leaders often traveled from town to town preaching about the gospel, emphasizing salvation from sins, and promoting enthusiasm for Christianity. This was in the 1700s, yeah. before evangelicalism was an incorporated thing. But these were the embryonic stages of it, basically. The result was a renewed dedication toward religion. Many historians believe the Great Awakening had a lasting impact on various Christian denominations and American culture at large. It goes back to the 1700s keep in mind what their MO was and how they went about steering people's thoughts back toward religion. And this was in the 1700s. What they did then still has an undercurrent in our culture today. That's very important to consider, and you'll understand why in a little while. That quote, by the way, came from an article on history.com about the Great Awakening. Oddly enough, Evangelicals' influence during the Great Awakenings led to a few crucial social reforms, some good and some not so much. I'm not giving them credit or placing blame, just stating that they influenced thought and in some cases influenced law and policy in the following areas and even in a few more. They influenced policy in abolitionism, opposition to mail deliveries on Sundays, which led to blue laws in America, prohibition of alcoholic beverages, that went over really well, 
Concerns over prostitution, also monikered white slavery for various reasons, and yes, I can see that to a certain extent. Women's suffrage, which for those who still, I mean, if you're coming out of evangelical culture, you may not know precisely what that means. It's women's right to vote, which really hasn't been a thing for that long in this country either. Nope. And then there are various civil rights initiatives, which, you know, depending on the slant you put on them can be good things or bad things. I mean, civil rights for whom and who benefits. In modern times, some of the key influences and subjects of greatest debate raised by evangelicals have been over the First Amendment, prayer in schools, evolution, and abortion. I don't think that there are any other issues that evangelicals fight with more ferocity than those and, and variants of those. By way of example, they don't like that evolution is taught in public schools and never have. And they won a huge victory with that in the Scopes trial, but not with the general public. The general public was not happy with the outcome of the Scopes trial. Most normal thinking people thought, and many expressed, that rejecting real science in favor of pseudoscience was not a very good idea. So our secular society didn't like it very much, but the religious bodies of the day kind of had their way in this particular case. A number of the people involved in the Scopes trial were basically shamed out of public life afterward, but they would find allies in the White House. First in Jimmy Carter, who was evangelical, but also a Democrat, and very liberal in his interpretation of evangelical faith, and then in Ronald Reagan. While Carter was an outspoken, born-again Christian, Reagan's tack was a bit more secular. Evangelicals liked him because he kept the spotlight on key moral issues that appealed to evangelical voters. He even claimed to be a Christian at one point and then found himself in hot water when it was found out that Nancy Reagan consulted with an astrologer. This was, of course, far more innocuous than the average evangelical would like you to think it was, and boy did it get blown out of proportion during the mid to late 80s. Now, the timeline for this story, the way that I'm explaining all of these details, is going to jump around just a little, only because some of the details warrant jumping around to uh, to bring up, and this was one of them. I want to back up just a little bit at this point, though, because we kind of dipped into the 80s already talking about Reagan. I want to take a step back and talk about the moral majority, which started you know, a little bit before that. If there's one thing evangelicals really don't like... It's the concept of secularism. Again, from the article, starting in the mid-1970s, a resurgence of political activity began to develop among conservative Christians in the United States. Alarmed by what they perceived to be the moral decline of American society, they sought to introduce a new social agenda into American politics aimed at fighting the forces of secularization. Christian groups in the United States established a number of organizations designed to penetrate U.S. government and politics with conservative Christian values. The biggest and most high profile of these organizations was the good old Moral Majority. Founded in 1979 by Jerry Falwell, an influential Baptist minister and televangelist, the Moral Majority joined with other political conservatives to promote the restoration of traditional moral values in American society. The organization played a huge part in getting Ronald Reagan elected in 1980, almost said erected. I think he was able to stand erect on his own and steered many a political conversation into a place of significant public attention on subjects like abortion, gay rights, pornography, social prayer, and the Equal Rights Amendment. 
They also, quote, advocated conservative positions on a variety of more secular issues, such as a balanced budget and defense spending, unquote. And just about 10 years in, Falwell disbanded the moral majority in 1989, basically saying that their work was done. They had accomplished their goal of introducing support for social reform into American politics, and they were done. Now, the moral majority remains an oft-imitated model for conservative Christian political activism, even in the year 2021. They wanted to counter the liberal trends that had emerged within American society during the 1960s and 1970s. I guess they didn't like all that free love that much either. Um, it was just a little bit too much for the people caught up in religion that markets hate is love and love is hate. So, you know, I, I can kind of see where they would have issues. But what is also interesting here is that there came a point where Jerry Falwell realized that evangelicals couldn't hold up the juggernaut for very long on their own. They needed reinforcements and they found them in allying with other religious groups that they would never be friends with in real life. Groups like the Mormons. Orthodox Jews, and the Catholics. He got away with it by never making official or legal connections with any organization, including other church organizations or any political party. I mean, Protestants and Catholics don't like each other on a good day. <laughs> but when they both have common purposes that involve things that will tear America apart, well, you know, they can bury the hatchet long enough to accomplish that. But here's the thing. And... Jerry Falwell understood this. The moral majority understood this. You don't have to be connected to something to either endorse it or influence it. Now, when Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976, he won the White House by capturing the evangelical vote, hence the declaration of 1976 as the year of the evangelical. At that point, evangelicals were not, by definition, hardline Republicans. As a matter of fact, a lot of them were still Democrats but they were still largely conservative. Jimmy Carter, on the other hand, was not. The Republicans had earned a lot of distrust close to that election with the Watergate scandal and Nixon's resignation. Otherwise, the election would almost definitely have gone to Gerald Ford. Carter aligned more with their values, but his liberal views on things like gay rights and abortion were too much for conservative voters to take. Granted, Carter wasn't the best president ever, but he also wasn't the worst. The worst was yet to come, and I'm not even talking about 45. One of these days I'll go off on a rant about Ronald Reagan, but not tonight. I think I've skirted that a couple of times. Maybe it's maybe it's something that we need to work into one yeah. of these topics when we're getting all political up in here. The 76 election, though, confirmed that evangelicals had a lot of political influence. A lot of political influence. So it was a good strategy to lure them back into right-wing politics. And with people like Jerry Falwell leading the fray, it wasn't difficult to sway the evangelical vote back around to the Republican Party just four years later. Quote, Protestants began looking for ways to use their newfound political muscle to push the country in a more rightward direction. At the same time, a tightly knit group of conservative political operatives associated with such organizations as the Heritage Foundation and the Free Congress Foundation and calling themselves New Right or Movement Conservatives were actively seeking ways to enlist this evangelical army into their movement. By the end of the 1970s, Jerry Falwell had fully weaponized both his radio and TV ministries against gay rights, abortion, and any other issue he decided to stamp with the label secular humanist. Boy, did he demonize the term. 
I remember it putting a really bad taste in my mouth at the time, and I remember hearing it from him. Mm. It was almost a McCarthy-esque witch hunt with no tangible or corporeal prey, just this concept. This was the ineffable monster devouring the morals of America. This was the enemy of Christianity. This was the thing that was sending people to hell and turning them into atheists and agnostics, or worse, homosexuals and gay sympathizers. This thing called secular humanism was the enemy, and its principles were sinful and dishonest. And boy, oh boy, did that messaging make it into my head when I was young. Another quote, in 1979, with the encouragement and assistance of new right leaders, Falwell founded the Moral Majority, declaring that it would be, quote, pro-life, pro-family, pro-moral, and pro-American. Its stated aims included registering evangelical Christians to vote, informing members about what was going on in the Washington and state legislatures, lobbying to defeat leftist legislation, and pushing for legislation that would protect and advance a conservative social agenda. There were a few faces from the news that I recognized on site in 1980. Keep in mind, I was eight years old. I recognized Jimmy Carter. I recognized Ronald Reagan. I recognized the Ayatollah Khomeini. I recognized Walter Cronkite. Oddly enough, I also recognized Jerry Falwell, and I knew what the moral majority was. That's significant. In 1980, it was a year old, but I know, and maybe not in 1980, but certainly in the early 80s, these things had been normalized inside my head. I knew who Jerry Falwell was, and I knew what the moral majority was. Five years before I had any aggressive evangelical influence on my life, I knew this guy and what he represented, or at least in some nebulous eight-year-old way. I knew that he was a religious figure and that he was associated with our government. That's where my understanding was at that point. And there was a reason for that. And throughout the 1980 election campaign, and for several years afterward, Falwell traveled extensively throughout the nation, telling pastors, mostly fundamentalist independent Baptists, that their duty was, quote, getting people saved, baptized and registered to vote and also helping them organize chapters of the moral majority. So he was literally all over the news. He was doing things everywhere, whether it was politically based or whether it was just going from church to church or if it was just his presence on TV because he was a televangelist and one of the most popular ones out there at the time. So he was in front of me and I still, it, it, absolutely dumbfounds me out of all of the things that I saw on TV at the time. When I think about the news in particular, that's the significant part of this. When I think about the news in particular, he's lumped in there with all the other people that I mentioned. This whole thing, the whole part about getting people saved, baptized, and registered to vote, it's all very formulaic. And it's also very, very familiar. The moral majority used the evangelical conversion playbook to not only make more evangelicals, but to cultivate more evangelical voters. They were hard at work filling their quiver with new babes in Christ, people who were easy to influence and control. And for a while, there were a lot of arrows in that quiver. Voting age babies, they could get to vote the way that they said, absent of any real knowledge of the candidate or his or her agenda, were very valuable. Back to the article, because of Falwell's attention-getting message and style and his ubiquitous presence on television and in the press, the moral majority became the best-known representative and symbol of the movement that came to be called the Christian New Right, or more simply, the Religious Right. 
it's that much of a contemporary thing. And right there, you see that signature evangelical emotionalism and sensationalism. It works so well. It's always worked so well. Talk about having a strong influence over the weak-minded. The moral majority had that strong influence over the 1980 election, and they helped Ronald Reagan win the presidency. They also steered state elections into a Republican majority Senate in 1980. Quote, the moral majority proved to be very successful in building its coalition of like-minded conservatives. By the 1980 election, it included upwards of 2 million members, and perhaps twice that many during its peak years in the mid-1980s. But even with all of this momentum, the religious right still didn't have the political influence or organizational savvy. That's a nice way to say their chapters were run by morons who didn't know their ass from a hole in their doctrine. To win significant support in the White House or Congress for its conservative and clearly religiously fueled social agenda. Falwell was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in the mid-1980s. His TV ministry was having financial difficulties while Liberty University was actually growing. So what did he do? In pure evangelical grifter fashion, he turned his attention to his own interests and away from the larger political stage. He stepped down as the formal head of the organization in 1987 and was succeeded by Jerry Nims. He stayed visible and active in the organization, though, until officially dissolving it in 1989. The moral majority had two powerful weapons in their arsenal. For starters, they knew how to use and manipulate mass media. This is what you get when your leader is a smarmy televangelist who managed to perfect the art of the grift with various media outlets. Falwell had, in fact, had loads of success in both radio and TV, and he used it to the organization's advantage. Quote, in 1956, Falwell also began broadcasting his sermons on a radio program called the Old Time Gospel Hour. Six months later, just six months later, the program began appearing on a local television network and eventually went into national and even international syndications and claimed more than 50 million regular viewers. That comes from EncyclopediaBritannica.com in their entry about Jerry Falwell. TV preachers were a popular thing in the 50s and 60s, but they had virtually become a cultural phenomenon by the 1970s. The decade of decadence, the 1980s, also fueled their popularity despite the fall of Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker. Yes, those things were a bit of a setback, but it didn't exactly cripple the movement. The word faith televangelists in particular had, and apparently still have, a signature charisma that seemed to transcend both scandals at the time and allow charlatans like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, and Frederick Casey Price to continue to draw massive crowds and amass huge followings. And right there in the middle of the fray was the ever-present Jerry Falwell, who had a distinct talent for tapping into a huge segment of mass media, and that segment was the news. The news media saw in Falwell, quote, an articulate and readily accessible spokesman for the religious right, through the extensive news coverage that Falwell received, particularly during the national political campaigns of the early 1980s, the moral majority became the leading symbol of the religious right's new political influence, unquote. The other weapon that I mentioned was the organization of an extensive grassroots network with many chapters. Quote, these organizations sought to implement the agenda of the moral majority at the local level through their involvement in political races and community issues, and they represented the primary vehicle through which the movement's followers became involved in its activities. These two strategies are typical to evangelicals and evangelical organizations. 
After all, the vast majority of televangelists have been evangelical, with a smattering of Catholic and mainline Protestant representation thrown in there for good measure. And the concept of multi-chapter representation follows the same principle as church planting. Establish as many places as you can, attract as many people as you can, and make them all think like you. And then encourage them to vote. Quote, although their impact was not as conspicuous as that of the movement's national leaders, the local chapters had a lasting influence on religious conservatives by demonstrating the effectiveness of local political action. Local strategies thus became widely adopted by former members as they continued the work of the moral majority after it was disbanded in 1989. Falwell claimed officially that he disbanded the moral majority because it had achieved its goals. Now let's look at the real reasons. Since we deal in truth around here, the truth of the matter is that there were a few things that contributed to the end of the moral majority. It wasn't a robust organization doing great things for humanity. At the end, the movement really was on life support, pure and simple, and Jerry just basically pulled the plug. First, the organization was rightly accused of attempting to impose its own moral and religious views, which is what evangelicals do best, and why would they even try to deny it? It's foundational to the Great Commission. The moral majority even came under fire with some conservative Christians and conservative Christian organizations for its involvement in secular politics. Believe it or not, there are smart evangelicals out there, and there were at that time evangelicals as well as other conservative mainstream Protestants and Protestant denominations that actually liked the idea of preserving separation of church and state. Go figure. You see, most of them understand what the benefits are. The ones that are smart understand what the benefits are. Then there was the time that Pat Robertson decided to show his crazy to the world on the American political stage with a presidential run in 1988. It was a bit of a circus sideshow, if memory serves. Even I thought that he was a loon, as did most of the people in my circles. Most evangelicals in my circles thought this guy was a little bit loopy. And honestly, he made evangelical politicians look bad. Pure and simple. He just made them look bad. Is important to remember, though, that, quote, despite its relatively brief history as a formal organization, the moral majority had a major impact on America's political landscape and, more broadly, its popular culture. What does that sound like? Little whisperings of uh, the 1700s? Mm. Just a little bit? It played a key role in reintroducing religion to the realm of public debate. <laughs> Doesn't that sound familiar, too? not just by addressing explicitly religious issues such as school prayer, but by asserting the validity of religious belief as the foundation for public policy decisions, as in the controversy over abortion. Their stand on some issues, however, caught backlash from people who supported women's issues like feminism and reproductive choice and social issues like gay rights. They were cornered into making a valid defense for their views and couldn't since, well, only people who believe in the Bible give two shits what the Bible says about anything, and they had no better or even sensical authority to point to than that. But the most dangerous thing they did, in my opinion, is attach their views like a virus to every social issue out there, and to this day, there is no all-reaching vaccination or cure. Evangelical thought is still applied in alarming degrees to all kinds of social issues like Burwell versus Hobby Lobby and the list of things that we discussed last week. But even before the moral majority, evangelicals had become, and I love this term actually, politically energized. I mean, I, I just 
it has a real kind of Bible man feel to it. Yeah. They were politically energized. And yeah, that's one way of putting it, I guess. So they were politically energized by any issue they regarded as promoting and advancing secularization in American culture. It's like the thing that made them go super cyan. That was the other thing I'm thinking about there. Um, secularization? No, we can't have that. Boom. Quote, they were particularly troubled by Supreme Court decisions in Engel versus Vitale in 1962 and Abington versus Shemp in 1963, limiting devotional exercises in public schools on the basis of the Establishment Clause. Many evangelicals favored a constitutional amendment to overturn these decisions. Others were concerned with what they perceived to be the nation's moral decline as represented in cases like Roe versus Wade, which liberalized abortion laws and a myriad of decisions that liberalized the publication of obscenity and pornography. I remember this one. Reverend Jerry Falwell unsuccessfully sued Larry Flint, publisher of Hustler magazine, for intentional infliction of emotional distress resulting from a defamatory parody that he had published. Oh, I remember the details of that, too. I'm not going to get into it right now, but you can Google it, and it was good. There is also precedent to the moral majority when it comes to forming alliances. Evangelicals had a habit of playing the strength in numbers card, just like Jerry Falwell did, and allied with the Catholic Church, the Mormons, and various Jewish groups who held the same or similar opinions to their own for various political purposes. Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson were among those who rallied voters by appeals to right-wing causes. Evangelical lawyers increasingly began to view their own profession as a calling that could aid the cause, and a host of legal advocacy groups were formed, including the American Center for Law and Justice, the Christian Legal Society, the Rutherford Society, which I believe morphed into the Rutherford Institute, yeah. and others. I can remember at the station I worked yeah. at, we used to run a show, it's a short show called Freedom Under Fire. Oh, yeah. And that was the Rutherford Institute, and it was just what we're talking about now. Right. Cases that they brought before various courts on the basis of religious liberty. And, I mean, those names, when I read them the first time, I'm like, Jesus, they sound like the names of ministries, except maybe the Center for Law and Justice. The first time I heard that, the only thing I could think of was the Foundation for Law and Government, and then I said, no, no, that's Knight Rider. <laughs> um, that, that has nothing to do with American politics. But during the era of the moral majority, evangelical lawyers shifted their focus. For years, the emphasis of their efforts revolved around the free exercise of religion. But in the early 1980s, the emphasis shifted to free speech, and they were successful in a number of high-profile cases. They also spearheaded efforts that led to the decision in Lamb's Chapel versus Center Mauritius Union Free School District in 1993, which granted churches equal access to school facilities after hours. Evangelicals were also influential in getting adoption of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 and the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. In Christian Legal Society versus Martinez in 2011, Evangelicals suffered something of a setback when the Supreme Court allowed Hastings College of Law to exclude evangelical groups that did not open its leadership to non-believers. I love that. Yeah. I, I read that and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, take that. Mm -hmm. That was a real take that moment for me. Lisa Shaw Roy suggests that this decision might prompt evangelicals to reconsider using greater reliance on the free exercise clause rather than the free speech provisions of the First Amendment. The article then mentions Burwell versus Hobby Lobby and the ramifications of that ruling, which we discussed in detail last time around. 
I mention it here again because it shows just how far things have come in such a short period of time. When you think about it, it really is remarkable. The majority of evangelical influence in Republican politics began in the 80s. And while I still feel old thinking about how long ago 1980 was, in terms of history, it's not that long. And it amazes me how much this came down to just really one guy and an idea. So Jimmy Carter gets elected. Evangelicals are largely responsible. But even then, right-wing conservatives spoke their language just a little bit better. And when Jimmy said things like gay rights, it took the proverbial evangelical jump to the left another step to the right. And step by step by step, they made their way into a place of unsettling loyalty to the Republican Party. Now, last week, I teased two questions that we intended to answer in this episode. What is it about the religion of love your neighbor that finds appeal in a group of people whose goals and objectives couldn't be further from that concept? And what could happen if we don't keep pulling back the curtain on evangelical lies, hypocrisy, and alarmism, and keep lessening their influence over U.S. politics? Here are what I think to be the answers to those questions. For starters, love your neighbor is nothing more than a platitude. It was nothing more when the words were written, and as I've said before, Love is a word evangelicals like to weaponize, but don't even remotely understand. Nothing that the moral majority did or the aftershocks it created had the first thing to do with love or concern for anyone outside their religious strata. The organization embodied the kind of selfishness, narrow-mindedness, and nearsightedness that is signature to everything evangelical organizations do. They saw an opportunity to forge long-term alliances with conservative political bodies that have had the effects over time of electing presidents and other governmental officials at federal, state, and even local levels. So the answer, I think, is obvious. Christianity in general is the perfect cover for things like misogyny and bigotry because it goes great lengths to teach and promote these things and always has. And what we've learned about the Republican Party tells us that conservative ideology and what passes for Christian morals and ethics are very compatible bedfellows. And for as long as they are allowed, they will continue combining their efforts to undermine the Constitution and weaponize the First Amendment on every point. What does the religion of love thy neighbor have in common with American conservatism? Everything. Every last racist, homophobic, xenophobic, and misogynistic thing. And that's the problem. And it's a big one. And what could happen if they go unchecked? I dare say we're already seeing it. A Supreme Court that says it's okay to be bigoted against gays and that it's okay to impose your sexual morals on thousands of people just because you sign their paychecks is a clear indicator. The juggernaut that was 45's 2016 campaign was another. And even before the election, all the problems I mentioned a minute ago were making their way to the surface like so much dross, especially racism. And in the four years we spent in the hell that was the 45th presidential administration, we watched the Supreme Court become even more corrupt and some of the worst examples of racists, homophobes, xenophobes, and misogynists in our federal government went out of their way to protect every vile, underhanded, treasonous, seditious thing that their leader did. Muslim bans and banning transsexuals in the military and a long list of civil human rights rollbacks, not to mention out-and-out -out banning of diversity training on systemic racism, all happened during 45's administration and most within a matter of months. It's okay to hate people over their religion. Trans people aren't normal. 
Racism isn't that big a deal. These kinds of thoughts will continue gaining ground and they have the potential to shape the cultural zeitgeist for years to come. And if you think for even one minute that this is an overstatement, please try to understand this. The alliance between the Republican Party and evangelical Christians came about largely because of one person a good marketer and a good persuader who in the course of only about six or seven years managed to weave evangelical ideology so deeply into the fabric of American government and lawmaking that unraveling it could take decades or longer. We're still feeling aftershocks of the Great Awakening. And that was well over, it's going on 300 years ago. Jerry Falwell knew how to use mass media so well that he had representation in nearly every state in the union. Those people were identified when they steered the vote in favor of Jimmy Carter. Then, with the advent of the moral majority, they were conditioned on how to think about hot-button issues like abortion and gay rights. They were told how to interpret the First Amendment, and most importantly, they were told how to vote, and they obeyed. That, in a nutshell, is how it happened. It amazes me how little it took and how fast it actually happened. And if religion, any religion, can have that kind of influence over a secular society, it is a dangerous religion indeed. Especially when it's a religion that never learns its place, asserts too much dominance over society, and teaches far too toxic principles about most social issues. Now, I just want to turn for a second to the evangelicals who spent years voting for Republicans, um, to the ex-evangelicals who spent years voting for Republicans. I just want to let you know, it's okay. We were all duped. I voted Republican the first couple of times that I voted in presidential elections, I voted Republican. I was pissed at Al Gore for trying to uh, steal the election from W because I was still in that mindset. I remember going to bed on election night when it looked like George Jr. had won and saying to myself, this is fantastic. He's going to appoint, I think it was at that point, two or three Supreme Court justices and conservatism is going to get the uh, the attention that it deserves. We're going to get our way with things. And I remember thinking this in my head and actually I think saying out saying it out loud. We crawled into bed that night and I think I said that out loud. And then we woke up to the shitstorm that was the whole thing over hanging chads and whatnot. So I've been there and I know what it's like to believe what these people say and buy it hook, line and sinker. Yeah, I was partly responsible for putting a couple of uh, conservative presidents in the White House, too. And you know what? It's okay. We live, we learn, we grow up and we figure out the truth. Those of us who are smart. Those of us who have the notion to start thinking for ourselves at some point, we come to certain realizations. And as I've said many times before, you got to let go of the mistakes that were made in the past. And yet a lot of us got duped, but we learned and we're feeling much better now. The only thing that I would encourage you to do is if you're coming out of this at this point in your life, what I would encourage you to do is maintain the zeal that your pastor put in you for voting. But instead of voting for the person that he wants you to vote for, vote for the person that you think is going to be best for your community, your state, or for your country. I vote for what I believe is going to be best for my community and for my state and for my country. And I don't worry about what some dude behind a pulpit has to say. 
and you shouldn't either. And you shouldn't worry about the time, the years that you spent under the influence of that kind of thought and going to your voting booth and obeying what you were told. The only thing you need to obey in that voting booth now is your own conscience. And I hope that the next time you step into that voting booth, that's what you're using to make your decision and not the influences of someone on the outside who has their own agenda. Vote based on what you think is right and participate in activist programs and things that go on in your community based on what you think is right. Get as involved as you think is right for you in the political process because it's important. We need the right voices speaking for us. We have a representative government. Do your part to make sure that your government represents you. Now, in the midst of my normal call to action for awareness, activism, and involvement, I know it gets a little repetitive. I've said this stuff a lot. I've made these appeals a lot. We know what the solutions are, but the problem is thinking about what it would take to achieve them can be daunting, and I get that. It's tiring. It's frustrating as hell looking at the way things are, and it can make you want to throw up your arms and say, well, what can I do about it? Well, I just rattled off some of the things that you can do. Even if you never do anything but vote, do that because it matters. And just a couple of words of encouragement here about this whole business that we find ourselves in and this vile political body that has stacked the Supreme Court with its own vile people, making vile decisions on the basis of what a vile God would want them to. Try and remember that their numbers are dropping. Their influence is waning. It's happening slowly, but it is happening. Try to take some encouragement from those few simple observable truths. Maybe it'll make those calls to action a little easier to swallow, and maybe by being proactive, motivated, and armed with what we know about ourselves as a people, those of us who champion ideologies like secularism and humanism, terms that are wildly positive and not even remotely scary to me now, can start increasing our influence and help a few more people get and stay unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.